podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome everybody to another bonus episode of Macklin's Take. Hope you're all well and enjoying these extra episodes that our top producer Darren Reese has been bringing to you. In this one, we go for an Irish theme and we look back at conversations we've had with Andy Lee, with Kenny Egan and Eric Donovan, and then last but certainly not least with Carl Frampton. So Andy is somebody we've had on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, Him and Matt know each other well. Uh, We work with Andy on Sky every now and again too. The first time we spoke to him was back in March 2019. It was one of the first podcasts that we did uh, very early days in the journey of uh, of Macklin's take. And at that point, we had a good look at his, at his career because he wasn't that long retired. Uh, and we did talk to him about whether he would be interested in training fighters and him and Matt had a really good chat about that. And then by the time we next spoke to him, which was around about this time last year when we were working um, on Golovkin, Derevyanchenko with him, if memory serves correctly. He'd already made that leap and already was a trainer. So it was great to to catch up with him then too. And we'll get him back on before too long because Andy's always, always great value. Then on to a conversation we had around fight camp with Kenny Egan and Eric Donovan, who had been international teammates with Ireland, Kenny, of course, winning a, a silver medal in Beijing. Uh, and Eric was on the fight camp roster boxing Zelfa Barrett. And those two were great fun. They've got really interesting stories. Uh, they've had battles themselves inside and outside the ring, which they were happy to get into. Uh, and it was just really good fun ahead of Eric's fight to, to get those two on as a pair. And then finally, as I mentioned, Carl Frampton. So, Carl, we spoke to back in March, one of the last podcasts we recorded, actually, before the current crisis hit. We sat down with him at the hotel at the Malmaison on the Friday afternoon, and little did we know what was just around the corner. Uh, Carl, a two-weight world champion, of course, and hoping later in this year to become a three-weight world champion against Jamel Herring. And he was working with us with Sky that week, and... He's just always an interesting character to talk to. Very, very honest in his opinions. Good sense of humour, uh, and of course, has experienced boxing at the at the very highest level. As have all the fighters that I mentioned there. Andy, of course, a former world champion. Uh, they've all been to the very top, amateur or pro or both. So, hope you enjoy this one. Oh, the shot, baby. Such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heat, baby, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know, when that shark bites, well, it's but overall now, just looking back and talking about it and all these kinds of things you have to go through, never mind the training and, and the actual fighting and, and throwing and taking training punches. Season. Are, you, uh, <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you glad to be out of it now? Are you glad yeah. to not have to have anything to do with any of that? And, and are you going to stay out of it, Andy, do you think? Exactly, yeah, I am. I'm happy. I, um, I, I couldn't imagine myself getting No training, any, no uh, managing, nothing no, like that? Not, 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 not for now, anyway. Uh, we, we spoke about it again last night and... Um, yeah, happy the way it went, and and just everything has its takes like runs its course, doesn't it? And that was that was that little time in my life, and I'd probably you know, even now I look back and think that I actually do those things, you know, because it's so far removed from it somehow, you know. Like I'm not in the gym, I'm not around boxing people, because like so I just I'm basically just a full time dad now. <laughs> That's completely different. It's not how I pictured retirement, you know, changing nappies and uh, putting them down for naps, but it's grand. It's good crack. <laughs> I guess the, the industry never changes to an extent, though, does it? I mean, you, you'll see what other fighters are, are <clears throat> going through, trying to negotiate their like, deals. Like, when you look at the guys who who watch, like, maybe Charlie Edwards has had some of it, but you look at, like, Boazzi and Akoli. I don't know if Boazzi will ever experience any of that. Maybe Akoli will if things don't go well, like, a year or two down the line. Charlie Edwards has had some of it because he's had a lot of chopping and changing, living away from home, and there were long periods when he wasn't getting fights. So he's kind of come through some of that. But 
it's just some fighters have that kind of life and then there are guys who are journeymen and some guys who are getting ro- like you know get, like really getting getting like taken advantage of so it's just the cost your career takes isn't it and when Charlie spoke in the fighter meeting before the last fight I could completely identify with what he was saying mm. because because I'd been on a similar you know I could have, I I understood his frustration I understood his indecision his his journey went for his training hasn't quite worked out he's been lonely and I kind of had a really strong feeling that he was going to put on a special performance because of it. Everything was coming together for him. But like, uh, I don't know. As fighters, you're never really satisfied as well. So sometimes you might like you like we're we're putting our trust into all the into these people to manage our careers and promote us and look after us. Um, but they're just doing their best as well. And sometimes you don't fully agree with them. and You give them a hard times. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that, but like. The fighter is probably the one who pays the biggest cost, but like, um, like even like I was saying, like Boazzi there, he's a star on the rise. He's got a he look, from the outside, he's got the perfect cell. He's got a great, like, probably the best promoter in boxing. He's got uh, Anthony Joshua looking after him as well. But I'm sure there'll be times when he feels, well, I should have got this fight, or why am I not fighting him, or like. So I think it's relative to everybody, but like. Depends what your tolerance is for like disappointment, you know, and it depends how much you really want it. You know, and I think some it? more than others, everyone because everyone's journey is different. You know, I, I can understand a lot with what Andy's journey because I, I had similarities myself. But then you know, someone who just stayed in, who's from Manchester, stays in Manchester, trained with someone in Manchester, and had the one promoter his whole career. He's probably not going to really identify or understand because he hasn't been there so he, from his point of view he's always had the one trainer the one promoter he'll still have his disappointments and he'll still have the his aggravations and the hard conversations on the phone no doubt but I think the, the, the going away I think certainly feeling isolated that, that's a big one isn't it it is, but the thing, and the thing is, you're a young man. You're only in your, like for me, you're in your early twenties, and you're dealing with men who've been doing this for a long, long time. I'm far more experienced than you are, and in life, not just in boxing. And then you kind of, you kind of have to confront these people, you know. And it, it takes, no, it takes courage. I wouldn't say. It ta- I don't know what the word is, but like, did I? You, you have to kind of change the dynamic because when you're coming in. You're a young guy. You're everything's great. Everyone's patting you on the back. You know, you think this, this is a great environment. This is a great world, and I want to be part of it. But then you come to the realization after a while that no, that wasn't a good thing that you've done for me, or you didn't look after me there. And then you have to kind of have to come to terms with that, and then eventually confront the person. And it's 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 not the easiest. You know what I mean? That's why you'd see a lot of young boxers or any boxers getting taken advantage of and getting you know getting chewed up and spit out by boxing. So. It teaches you to become a man as well as yeah. all oh, that absolutely. stuff, you know? We were saying that, weren't we? And, and um, I think on top of that as well, I think you come in bright-eyed, thinking everyone's your friend, everything's great. Then you've got to be careful when reality kicks in that you don't become over-sceptical or over-cynical because everyone's doing their... Everyone's got a point of view and you've got to understand it from the manager's point of view, you've got to understand it from the promoter's point of view, from the TV. You're the fighter. Everyone's got their point of view on things. and But I think it's... It, for me, anyway, coming where I am now, three years into appointment time at work and Sky, all those little ins and outs and disappointments and different things, I, I'm at complete peace with that now. Maybe I don't, don't ever was straight away when I retired, but I am now, and you realise it's all, it's all part of the journey. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Things have changed for you, Andy, since uh, since we last spoke to you. It was back in March uh, after a show at the at the Copper Box, and, and at, at that point, you and Matt were talking about about training and whether it was something you were going to get into, and and you were both saying that you know it was something you would definitely think about if you could find the right person, if you could find the right fighter, and you taken the plunge. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
and and even then it was very we were very very cautious about committing to something like that because it is a huge commitment but I am training and managing a young boxer now his name is Paddy Donovan uh, people may, might have heard of him people kind of who keep an eye on the amateur scene would have heard of him um, but he's, a, he's an, to me uh, he's an exceptional talent and uh, <clears throat> it's an easy start because I'm not like taking him like a raw novice he's, he's a guy who's accomplished already world silver medalist as an amateur and like won so many titles but he has a style and he fights in a way that, that is suitable to professional boxing so um, yeah it's easing myself in in a way but on the other side no because he's still 20 and he's completely wide out. you know he's green in a lot of senses so you, you kind of like fr- mutual friend of ours Brian Peters he was the one he said oh, be careful Andy you know how he says <laughs> so you're going to have it it's like having another child it's like having another child and I I'm not sure if I fully grasped it, but that's what it's like, you know. It's just uh, it's, you're just constantly thinking about them. It, it's funny because we were having yeah. it was around. The, you're, you're right. It was the copper box. We, we finished up early. We went for a, a shake shack. I think yeah. we did for something to eat, and we were we were you know shooting the ideas around and talking what's happening. And look, I suppose after you've finished fighting yourself, to go on the journey with a good fighter and be the second in the corner and managing him, it's probably the next biggest thing, and it's a great journey if it goes well. But Without a doubt, it would be a massive, massive commitment. And I just walked away from signing the trainer where I was going to train and manage Joe Ward. I mean, Andy knows Joe as well. And it was Joe. I've never seen Paddy Donovan box. But Joe told me how good Paddy Donovan was. And uh, I've had a look at him since. And then when you teamed up with him, we've spoken. It's, it's good how things work out. But I remember at that time with Joe, I'd... I'd uh, I'd probably been working hard on it from around the Bellew Usyk fight. Uh, had a good deal on the table with Eddie Hearn. Was going to train him on the gym. He was going to come over to Burma. The gym had everything sorted. And then the last, there was a few things I was starting to get, a few negative thoughts about it, and then um, a few signs, we'll say. And then when Joe kind of, after me agreeing a deal with Eddie, come back and wanted to move the goalpost and get what you, I just saw that as a sign. I thought, you know, I'm doing. I'm working nearly every week with Sky. <laughs> they have me working hard. I'm very busy. I'm getting my fix out of boxing. Uh, but And I just thought, you know what? Do I want to be in America three times a year with Joe? Seven times, four, four more times. He's going to back seven in his first year. He's going to be training. And I just thought, I don't know. I just thought, <laughs> I'd love the journey. But I just, and I like Joe and I think he's a talent. And, you know, all going well and he dedicates himself. I think he can probably go all the way. But I just thought it's going to be a massive, massive commitment but Andy's in a different place in his life than what I am. He's married, he's settled down, he's a child, so he's maybe more suited, <laughs> well, maybe get, more suited for Andy. I, I don't know, you, you can contest this, but life doesn't get any simpler, does it? It just gets more complicated. You think, like, especially when you retire, you know, you think, oh, I can't wait till I be retired so I can just, like, have a settled life. You know, nowhere and going day to day, um, have some sort of structure, but it, does, it just gets more chaotic, like, mm. doesn't it? it does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so how much of an adjustment has it been then? <clears throat> Yeah, I'm learning as he's learning, certainly. But I feel like, you know, the first, well, our first trip together, we thought we'd only done a couple of sessions, and then Adam said, uh, Josh Kelly is is going to be fighting Ray Robinson, and we're looking for a southpaw. I said, well, I've got a good southpaw kid. Uh, I'll bring him over. And so that was our first trip together. And in, I was a little bit intimidated because I was going in as a coach now with Adam, you know, and I knew, like, I'd have to be, I'd have to, like, do pad work Adam's a very good pad man you know and things just it's a little bit you know then you start you doubt yourself but then like then after a couple of sessions we sat, we found something we found a rhythm and you know you build up that language that kind of shorthand of words that you say that he understands what I mean if, if it's like you know whatever it might be clean which means step back cleanly or, or you know or just little, little even just the terminology <laughs> yeah that's yeah. that's what i'm trying to say and then and we and we have a camera and and outside of that he's he's a lovely lad you know and i enjoy spending time with him and uh and uh yeah and <clears throat> like he like he's he's a guy who's never had to work hard to be successful so that's probably the biggest challenge for him is for me is to actually show him what work is, you know what it is what the li- what how much is it this is just a life it's a lifestyle now it's it's not just you know fun and games it's not amateur boxing anymore and 
um, and and challenging him and stimulating him in the gym with different things and to keep you know once he's mastered and learned something not mastered but just learned a, one one skill then have something have something else up your sleeve to to take it to the next level you know so I've been looking at old tapes and old videos and of myself and Emmanuel and things that he done and watching and listening to old interviews and seeing things he used to say and then obviously drawing on everything from my recent with Adam, you know, so um yeah, that was it's it is a different it's different 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 challenge for me, but it's it's one I'm enjoying. Yeah. another lad that over the I suppose the last sort of couple of years, a couple of times I've flirted with the and, and and I spoke to him actually about maybe training and managing him, but he had a manager but getting involved as an advisor and maybe managing him when that was up with Jason Quigley. Obviously, Jason's gone with you, and I think that's a great move for Jason because I think even though Dominic King was obviously a good trainer and he had a lot of success with Billy Joe Saunders and other fighters, I didn't think he was the right fit for Jason Quigley. What, what, what have your, your, your first impressions working with Jason? Um, and what's it from you? And for you yeah, what's it? Look, you know Jason, and he's a lovely fella, and I know, I know how hard it is, and you know what it is like to lose a fight like that. Um, a fight you fancy to win and it kind of cut like it just destroys you, doesn't it? In like internal, like you just doubt everything and question everything, and you're looking for someone just to kind of bring you in and tell you it's going to be okay, and that this is what you do if you follow this plan, give you some assurance that okay, you, you can get back to where you, you want to be. But so I just. It started off with that. I texted him after the fight and just said, look, I know what it's like. You'll be okay. Just knowing, keep believing in yourself and blah, blah. He asked me, it was a few months later, he asked me would I train him. And I said, I'd, we'll do some sessions and see how it goes. And look, I'm going to train him now. He's talented. Um, and I don't want to be any critical of any of these coaches um, who he's had in the past. Like he's worked with Manny Rublas. He's worked with, um, obviously... Dominic Ingle, but some of the simple things that I'm showing, like he, I'm just showing him simple things, and, he, and he's saying he's saying to me, I've never done that before, um, and and that's probably because being so successful as an amateur and and, I'm, and having this kind of rise as a professional, might people not get complacent, but you might think he already knows it, you know, or I'm not sure, but simple little things, and and they're making their he's improving because of them, so. We'll see how it goes. They're, they're completely different in terms of their trajectories. Like Jason, within the next five fights, we'll know. For me, like it's it's not it's not with Paddy. It's going to be at least six years. You know, like it's going to be a it's a long term thing. It's going to be de- every day with Paddy. But with Jason, it's going to be the next five fights. We're going to know where he's going to make it or not. Um, so, but in, there's a benefit to them being together. They can train together. Obviously, they're they're, they're around each other's weight. They might. They could spar at some, and Jason's very clean living. And in terms of him, he's he he's probably he is a, a, like a model professional that he takes things serious and he trains hard and he lives the life outside the gym. And that can be a huge influence on Paddy. And given that kind of example that I was trying to trying to explain earlier, so that there are benefits for them working together. But Jason, Jason, I I think like I already he's improved already. He's a better fighter. I think like. And he's a guy who's teachable at that. Um, like, wouldn't be showing him one session, the next session he won't repeat the same mistake, you know, whether it's lifting his, like lifting his heel on his front foot, like he's taking a big step with his front foot, or when he threw his right, when he used to throw his right hand, he would bring his right foot in behind him. And so like something that we did in the amateurs, you know, it was like that old amateur technique from Azor, even from Nicholas Cruz, that kind of stepping with your punches, instead of driving in and having your feet grounded. Um, small things like that, but he's improving, and uh, he needs to he needs to get back in there now and win a few fights and get get that good feeling back, you know. Because until you do, until you like, till you do it, get back in there. It's you talk there about how it feels, you know. It destroys you when you lose a fight where you're meant to win, and uh, you know your first last, the first the first cut is the deepest, as mm-hmm. they say sometimes. But um, and, and I think that's that's a, that's something you can bring. Not just being a trainer, being a good trainer, I think, is not just being, going hit six rounds in the bag, shadow box, do ten sit-ups, whatever. It's 
it's a lot more than that. It's a mentor, isn't mm. it? You, 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 you're, like you're, you're a psychologist, really, as well. You know, because a guy's confidence is up, it's down, he's overtrained, he's tired, he needs a rest. You, you got to look at a lot more. And I know that Andy's very detailed. He, he's very analytical. So I, I know he's deep. You know what I mean? He's thinking about all that. That's why he, he know, I know what he's going to put into it. But mm. I'm also like that. And that's why I was thinking, oh, what am I taking on here in terms of the effort? Yeah. You know what I mean? So and it is, it's committed. Like in, uh, even you mentioned having a wife and kid. Yeah, I had to uh, like not ask, but speak to my wife about it because you need a blessing. It's 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 like that's I'm sharing my time now, which would be, f- you know, where I'd be available to to like if she had to do stuff to mind mind that daughter or spend time with her. Now I'm spending it with, with two lads, you know what I mean? Which is great as well. <laughs> you know, it's not well, at the same time, you know. so many top trainers that never marry. Yeah. For, you know, or, or, or do and get, you know what I mean? You, you, you see a lot of it because it's, it's so time consuming. You think, well, I'm only going to do two hours in the gym, but it's not two hours in the gym. It's the phone calls after. It's the, it's the, the thought, and, and, where the head's yeah, at. Yeah. And uh, the priority, you know, and, and the list of things. <laughs> we'll see. And managing as well, obviously, it's it's something that Matt says a lot is that when you turn pro, you need you need somebody who knows how to to steer the ship mm. because there's there are so many things that you can't you can't possibly know when you turn professional. You've got all sorts of decisions to make. We talk about this quite often, and and there are three kind of categories of things. I read this in a book somewhere once. I can't remember which one exactly, so who I should credit. But there are three categories of things. There are things you know. There are things you don't know, but you know you don't know them. And then there are unknown unknowns, things you don't know that you don't even yet know you don't know. <laughs> and there are so many of them in boxing, yeah. aren't there? But you've been through this, a pair of you. You've been through it, Andy, so you'll know about some of yeah. those unknown unknowns. Well, like with Paddy, I, he signed with top rank, and that was my first choice for him. And when you have that kind of you know that knowledge behind you in terms of Bruce Trampler and Brad Goodman yeah, it's half the battle you know it's half the battle so um, you're not dealing with crooks you're not dealing with people who don't know their job inside out so you, you, you're there's a certain tested, aren't you? yeah there's a certain amount yeah. of trust there but there's also you do have to do some guidance because they do match they will match your tough uh, and um, so there's a, there's a certain amount of protection you have to give but um no, like, like, and there's enough people I can call upon, like with Adam, um, still, still very much, you know, I'm in contact with him, not weekly, I would say, so, um, there was, if I don't know it, I, I'm not too proud to ask, you know, <laughs> or just say I don't know, you know, that's it, I'll just fob him off and give him a, like, let me get back to you on that one, <laughs> and then, 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 then see, but, yeah, it's, you know, we'll see how, it go- we'll see how it goes, but, like it's one thing, um, like you know, knowing it, but it's also being able to, in the moment, like uh, verbalize it and articulate it. it, it I found it's easier for me to demonstrate it because I'm still, I can still do a little bit of that. You know what I mean? So whether it's like throw your hook like this, it's like in terms of breaking it down from 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 the toes up to the shoulder, I I can just display it. and and a lot of times, especially with young fighters, that's you can you actually learn more from your examples. Then if I tell you to do something a million times, it's, it doesn't have the same effect as what I'm showing you five times, you know, because, you know, you, you start to mirror what you see and what's in front of you all the time, and that's, that's I don't know, it's, I suppose you have mirror, mirror I'm get, like getting into the, you have mirror neurons, so if you're seeing something in front of you all the time, that's, without even thinking about it, instinctively you will start to do it. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. So I'll just fill everybody in a little bit on um, on the timeline there. So when Eric retired, when he hung them up after a very successful amateur career, that would have been 2013 after, after you boxed for the Astana Islands in, in WSB. Now, people who, who listen to Magnus Take will know about WSB. It, it, it's no longer with us, sadly. It's unbelievably good competition. God, I loved it. You know, I've I commentated on it for four or five seasons. 
finals and it was just tremendous. And kind of your final hurrah in it really was boxing for the Astana Arlands against the Ukraine Ottomans uh, and winning a razor thin match. Now check this out. For the Ukraine Ottomans in their team was Vasily Lomachenko, Oleksandr Rusik and Oleksandr Kvostik. The Astana Arlands names wouldn't be as familiar to boxing fans unless they're very dedicated Aiba boxing fans because not as many of them turn pro uh, and they're not the names that uh, the other three that I've just mentioned. But the Astana Arlands won. That's the team that Eric was in. He was in a team that beat those guys. They might have won their individual bouts, but they won. I mean, what was it like spending that time? I've been to Kazakhstan a couple of times. What was it like boxing for the Astana Arlands? It was amazing. It was unbelievable. Like at the at, for the first eight weeks, it was so tough. Like I was literally finding it very, very difficult and inspiring. And I didn't realize that. Like when I was going out there, I was wasn't in the best of shape. And I was thinking, sure, look, I'm going to box for them. They're my, going to be my teammates, so it's not going to be that bad. They'll help me to get in shape. We'll work together as teammates. How wrong was I? I was boxing for, with, with a team. Some, of the, some guys were from the poorest countries in the world. And every one of them was vying for position and jostling, trying to get, trying to get selected to, get, to fight. Because when you won, you got prize money. And when you lost, not so good prize money. You know what I mean? So everyone wanted to get picked so they could get money and send it back home. And for the first eight weeks out there, it was absolutely grueling, torture. I was nearly, I was plotting my escape. I said, I got to get out here. <laughs> I, I got to get out here. I said, I may, you know, geez, but, but, but I rang a good friend of mine back home, you know, and I was talking about, he knew how important it was for me going out in the first place. And then I was telling him about, I was making up excuses basically about the language barrier, the food, the, they're not picking me to fight. I wouldn't pick me to fight either because I wasn't performing, inspiring or whatever. And then my friend said, Eric, he's a good friend of mine. He's a kind of a mentor, like, you know, and he goes, Eric, you're like, you're saying, you're, listen, he goes, I'm hearing a hell of a lot of excuses from you. And I wasn't happy when he said that. And he said, honestly, Eric, you don't have to explain yourself to me. If you want to come home, come home. But you only have to ask yourself one question. Will you regret it? That's the only question you have to answer. Forget about everything else. And then I said, okay, leave it with me. And I knew I would regret it because I was, I was already thinking of what would I tell people when I go home? I'll tell them about the food, the money, whatever. So anyways, once I, just, once I, I put my hands up and I, I, I had to admit I was struggling. So you can't change something. You can't, if, you, if you don't see your problem, you can't do anything about your problem. Do you understand? In life. If you don't see the problem you have, you can't change it. So I had to accept that I have a problem here. What can I do now? And then I started to put all of my resources into the solution. I started focusing on what I can control, only I can control. And I started learning Russian so I could speak and communicate to my designated Southpaw boxing coach who only had two words of English. So I started learning Russian so I could communicate with him and just learn the boxing language. Then I cleaned up my diet and I started to be first on the floor, last off the floor. I started to switch my attention to myself as opposed to the coaches who weren't picking me. I can't make them pick me. I can only focus on my own. And then I started to grow in the sparring. And I started sparring sessions that were 80, 20, 70, 30, started to become 50, 50. And I grew. And then I got picked to fight. And then I boxed against the, Itali uh, the Italians. And I won and boxed in front of 10,000 people. It was absolutely crazy. And it was just such a high. And of course, I went on and boxed David Oliver Joyce after that as well and kind of lost my way because there's an emotional thing with me and Davey. We're clubmates. We were, you know, there's a little bit of a, I let the emotions get the better of me. I felt like I was a better boxer than Davey Oliver. He's a better fighter than I am. But I fought him instead of boxing him. And then I moved on to the final. And they told me I'm going to box Lomachenko in the final. So I prepared for Vasily Lomachenko. I got selected. That shows you the growth that I made. They selected me to represent him in the final. And I trained for a few weeks knowing I was going to fight Lomachenko because that's who they put me, in, uh, that's who they put me down to fight. And then, of course, Lomachenko decided to weigh in on the first day and boxed against, um, uh, 
I forget uh, Ashen, uh, I, I forget the, our, our guy, one of our one of our good guys anyway, really good lightweight. Uh, so Vasily Lomachenko boxed boxed him, and then I boxed um, the guy, the big tall guy, Vasily's. Um, can't think of it. Vasily's, I think his name is. So he was coming down from sixty three point five to sixty one kilograms. And he was just an absolute giant, an absolute giant. Um, but look, it was an amazing experience. I fought hard, I fought well. And when I come home from Kazakhstan, I learned a hell of a lot about myself. And that gave me the confidence to kind of go back into education. I had to put boxing off because when I got back from Kazakhstan, I was 27 going on 28. I had two young boys. I had no work experience, no education. I, did not, I was not funded by the Sport Ireland anymore. I wasn't number one in Ireland anymore. And I was standing in the queue, signing on the door. And I said, this is not how life is supposed to be. I traveled the world. I represented my country. Yeah, I've won a lot. I have a lot of medals and all, but it's not doing anything for me. Um, this is not how, how I envisage my life to be. So I put boxing on the back burner, went back, sorted out my life, got a good education, and... I was about to go for my degree in 2016 when I answered the call to, to, to come back and give the boxing one more crack and to, to have no regrets. And that, that, that's basically it. Well, you did, you did what you needed to do um, at the time, of course. And looking back on it, though, that WSB experience would have been the perfect springboard if all other things had been well to go into the pros because that's exactly what Usyk and, and Lomachenko and Kvostik used it for post-2012. They decided, no, no, no. We'll do a season of WSB, do the five threes, and then, you know, we can move even quicker than um, than they probably would have done had they had they not done that. So, Kenny, you you hung them up about the same time, didn't you, amateur wise? I think in two thousand and thirteen. I think that's when you you called it a day. But but your career was fill, fill us in with what happened with you then? I seem to be around forever. Uh, you know, I was on the team from two thousand and one right through till 2013. So it was a long, long time traveling the world and living out of a suitcase and, you know, just being on the road. Just, it was the same thing year in, year out, year in, year out. And look, I'm blessed. I'm very lucky that I, I did get that, that, I suppose, that duration of international duty, if you like, for, the, for, for Ireland. There's only a handful, I think, that have, have lasted as long as I have. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged to have, that, you know, to have the opportunity to, 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 to have a career that lasts so long. But like Eric, you know, I, I lost my first three All-Ireland finals and uh, 11, 12 and 13 years of age. I was going to retire from boxing. That was it. Didn't feel I was good enough. Didn't feel I was strong enough. The sport wasn't for me. Um, I went back into the gym then, got back training, went on then to win 15 Irish titles after that. But, you know, I had bouts of, of the thoughts of retirement throughout my career because boxing, as Matt will know and Eric will know, it's, a, it's an awful hard sport it's very very unrewarding a lot of the time you're in the gym and you're training you're making weight and you're sparring and you have good spars you have bad spars you're getting on planes you're getting off planes you're living in suitcases it's not a glamorous sport at all um, and it is a working class sport you know people from working class areas thrive in, in sports like boxing um, and that was for me like it was an outlet for me got to meet some wonderful people in, in the boxing circles right through my career um, and obviously then you know, representing Ireland, the Europeans, world and Olympic level was fantastic. But when the Olympic final was over and the final bell rang, I dropped to my knees. And the first thought that came into my head was, what the fuck do I do now? And I do, I, I do say this regular in talks I give, you know, that was my first initial thought because I put all my eggs in the one basket. Like Eric, not really a fan of education. Wanted to be the best I could be in the boxing ring. By hook or by crook, I was sucked into the high performance and I wanted to do my best to try and qualify for the games, which I did. And getting to that final was amazing. Um, but then I said to myself, right, what do I do now? Because that was, if you like, that was my Everest. I had scaled my Everest and that was it. My life was, was more or less finished then in that chapter of my life. And I had no backup plan. And that was a scary place to be for me because I had no, no structure. I had no plan B. Um, and I come back to the country this is a small country we live in, four and a half million people. When you come back with an Olympic medal, it's a big thing. Um, and I found it very hard to kind of fall back into place with all the intrusion, if you like, the media intrusion, people that I 
known very well, wanting photos with me. I just couldn't handle the, the privacy intrusion. Um, and I drank on that, you know. Um, I said to myself, well, I'm going to win the medal here. I can take a few weeks off now and relax and enjoy myself. Party time. Uh, and it spoiled our control in that sense, you know. And I lost myself. Went into a dark place a few times. But luckily enough, I get out of that two years later. And I'm actually 10 years sober next week, which is a, a bigger milestone than any Olympic medal in, in my book. Good man, um, and that's an important thing for me, you know, because I do spread the word that recovery is possible because I'm, a, I'm, 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 I'm proof of it, you know. Yeah. But it's, 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 yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm a living example. But, you know, coming back from the games and having all that, that attention on you, it was amazing at the time and it was great, but I couldn't handle it. And two years after I come back was when I did stop drinking because it was a, a bad road there for those two years. I went into some horrible, horrible places. But, you know, I had good people around me, I had good friends around me, a good family around me that got me out of that, that dark hole, you know. Um, and then I continued to box on then. I won two more senior titles after the games. That brought me up to 10. But I just didn't have that fight anymore. But I continued because... I, I had aspirations to go to, to London in 2012 and half me wanted to go pro and do the half did and I was only talking about this the other day I had the documentation in front of me on the table of a hotel in 2009 ready to sign a five year contract with Joey Winters Matt you probably heard of him he's based out in New York yeah multi, multi-millionaire Joey Winters he's got to sign in Joe Ward yes yes same Joey Winters so he came looking for me and he sat down and he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't have any problem throwing any kind of money at me, you know? And I was thinking there. And deep down, I was thinking to myself, if I sign on this dotted line, I'm selling this guy a faulty fighter. Because I was, I was heavily drinking at the time. I was in a bad, bad place. And for me to sign on that line, dotted line and hand, 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 me, hand myself over to him, the half a fighter that I was, I could see myself turning into an absolute disaster over the next period of time based in America and, and, and the demons that I had. So I stepped away from the table and says, Joey, look, I, I can't actually sign this. I'm terribly sorry for wasting our time. Um, he didn't take it too, but he said, thanks for your honesty and all that. And he, he left the hotel and he got back on his plane and he went home. And looking back, do I have any regrets on that? Looking back now, if I had had the right frame of mind and the right mindset and didn't struggle with, with alcohol, I probably could have went on and been a decent pro, but Looking back now to where I am now, to what I have, you know, it beats any pro contract or anything because I'm genuinely very, very strong on my sobriety, which is everything to me. It's absolutely everything. And that allows me then to go back into the world as a functional human being and help people as best I can. But also the sporting end of it, getting back in to a taste of boxing, working with Eric is a, is a great opportunity for me to enjoy the sport again and have fun. And that's, what, that's exactly what we're doing. We're two friends. We have the crack, we have the banter, yeah. but when it's training time, we knuckle down, we get serious. And this is a journey the two of us are on here now. How far is it going to go? We don't know. But we're just going to enjoy it, you know, for as long as it lasts. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend, Rip, and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's and relatable ways and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. What he says about... It doesn't mind seeing a kid throw a tantrum when they lose. And people talk about, you know, bad losers and stuff. If you're a kid and you've lost a fight, a close fight, and you cry and you throw a bit of a tantrum, that means you wanted to win. It's not a bad thing. Obviously, when you get older and you, you can't you can't cry and throw tantrums, but <laughs> to learn to take it, yeah, harness it a bit of better. Of course, but as as a, I like this, I don't mind seeing a kid that having a little tantrum if if they get beaten a close fight. No, nor me, not at all. And it's interesting that the two of you graduated to an individual sport from a team sport. And and one of the reasons would have been what you've just been saying is that the accountability when you're only accountable for yourself is is purely that. The credit is yours. The blame is yours. 
begins and, and ends at your doorstep. And, and that's quite common. I speak to a lot of fighters who started in team sports and then in the end decided boxing was for them. I always say this because people, you know, you, when you, the people that you meet from years back when you would play different sports with, and I was good at all the sports I played. Like I say, that mad competitiveness really gets stuck in. Aggressive, not aggressive to fight, but, you know, a real winner, you know, will get stuck in. And I was, the way I say it, try and explain it, is it's like this. If I'd scored, if we... If we won the cup final and I scored a hat-trick and got man of the match and everyone was there on the Sunday cheering, all the families and everything cheering us on, and then I compare that to winning a club bout on a Tuesday night in the arse end of Wolverhampton somewhere in some social club, everyone smoking back then. No one there, just my coach. The, the high of getting the hat-trick and becoming my manager was nowhere near as high as how I felt after winning that fight in, in that lonely dingy old social club and no one there to see it nowhere near and if I, if, I, if I had a shocker and scored an own goal and we lost because of me that low would have been nowhere near as bad as if I lost that fight either it was just it literally boxing it's the ultimate comp- if you're a competitive person as obviously clearly Carl is and I was and most are it's that it's the ultimate you know it's the one to one there's no team you're not sharing the glory and you're not sharing the pain when you lose either it's, it's, the, it's the agony or the ecstasy and there's no in between Every fight as a kid, when you're in a club show and a social club, felt like a world title fight. Like, I remember always wanting to win and being very nervous about these, like, smoke-filled rooms and there's guys just drunk, what, maybe a couple of hundred people, whatever they are, um, cheering you on. But I remember boxing in all these club shows, wanting to win. It's something that always happened, especially when you're on club shows around your own area. If you won and you were a kid... You got money off people, so you're always you're always like half professional and getting paid. Um, probably getting paid some more money than some professionals these days, you know. But old men who were drunk firing you a fiver or a couple of quid, that was unbelievable. Getting that, like sometimes you'd walk away from an amateur bout as a, an eleven year old with twenty five quid, and you'd feel like a millionaire. It was it was a magic feeling. So, you were talking then about. It's understandable and, and not a bad thing if, if young fighters have tantrums when they when they first pick up a defeat. And, and of course, something that can happen in, in boxing, which makes it unique to other sports is, sports, is that you can get handed a defeat that you don't necessarily deserve. And that's something that takes a bit of sucking up and getting used to. That, that toughens you up. That makes you grow up quite quick. I mean, any early memories of, of maybe tantrums you had or the first time you felt you got robbed and, and how long it took you to get used to the fact that this is boxing? In, in amateur boxing especially, there's a lot of cries for robbery. Anytime someone gets beat, oh, but it was robbed. Um, and, and I think when you box on club shows, if you're, in the, if you're the away fighter, you need to win big to get the decision. So I had plenty of defeats in my career. There was some, sometimes I was robbed. Other times I was just fairly beaten. But I remember one, one instance, <sighs> I was in a club show in West Belfast in a... In a a social club called the PD, um, which is a Republican, pretty much IRA bar. And I'm Protestant from Tigers Bay. And I fought one of the local kids. Um, and he bit me on the shoulder during the fight. And I shouted, oh, fuck, he's bit me, the referee. And I got a public warning for talking. The referee like put his hand, his lips, and went, oh, stop. No talk on public. I'm like, look at my fucking arm or the bite mark in it. And I got a public warning. I lost that fight. But there were so many things like that as a kid. But you just have to suck it up and, and carry on. A good example, Paddy Barnes lost his first 12 fights. Now, if you're losing 12 fights in a row, I, I'm, I would have stopped. I would have packed it in. I They're think. not all robberies, are they? No, not all robberies, but most people are packing it in. But Paddy went on to become a three-time Olympian, a two-time Olympic medalist, one of the greatest amateur boxers of all time. Pro career wasn't that great. <laughs> and he let, uh, yeah, he, he'll take that well because me and Paddy are good mates. But it, I think Paddy was over the hill going to the Olympics in Rio. He couldn't do the weight in Rio, could he? I remember he was boxing for Italia Thunder, I think, in WSB, and him and Michael both were, Michael Conlon, and they qualified through that, which is brilliant because it means you qualify about 18 months before the Olympics. Yeah. But by the time the Olympics came around, he couldn't do 49 kilos anymore. And 
just what happened to that whole Irish team, that Olympics? We, we talked about it briefly before. It was, was amazing. Joe Ward as well. Kate, yeah, Joe Ward got disqualified, which was absurd. Uh, Paddy couldn't do the weight. Katie Taylor, I thought, maybe after getting a few going her way over a good, good period of time, didn't get one that I thought she could easily have got. And it all just kind of fell apart. You didn't. Um, the Olympics wasn't something that happened for you. And w when you look back on that, how... Did you feel you met your goals as an amateur? And, and if you didn't, did that kind of give you further fuel when you turned pro? I, I'd done okay as an amateur. I won two Irish senior titles at different weight divisions. I won a few multi-nation medals. I won a European Union silver medal. Um, but I never went to a major, major tournament. I never went to Commonwealth Games even. Um, I never... I never went to the Olympics, but th that was one of the reasons why I turned professional. So I was David Oliver Joyce, who's my friend, was the number one featherweight um, in Ireland at the time um, for Beijing, yeah, 2008. Um, and there was, I was kind of outperforming him on the, in the multi-nations and, and our kind of the training camps and stuff. So Billy Walsh, the coach at the time, suggested a box-off between me and David Oliver. Um, David Oliver's coach um, was the president of the Irish Boxing Association at the time. I had a perforated eardrum and he said something about this box-off has to happen within the next week or it doesn't happen. I never ended up getting the box-off because of the perforated ear and Davey went to four qualifiers and didn't qualify for Beijing and when he came home, I boxed him in the All-Irelands final. I dropped him. I gave him a standing count and like beat, beat him convincingly. And it was almost like me turning pro was like sticking the fingers up to the IABA saying you should have given me a shot. And the option was to wait around for London in 2012. How old would you have been? I was London? 22 when I turned pro. I would have been 20, 26, and which is a bit old. And, yeah. and who knows? I, I may not have qualified. Yeah, yeah. It's a long time to wait at that age and you're not sure. Absolutely. And I think, I, to be honest, being brutally honest, I don't think I would have qualified. And I'll tell you why. John Joe Nevin was the 56 kilo boxer at the time which would have been my division and as an amateur I wouldn't have beat John Joe so I wouldn't even have got the qualifier again so I think I made the right decision Well he won the silver medal in the end didn't yeah. he? Lost to Luke Campbell in the final so that, that Irish team was so strong for, for such a long time there is just as much politics or at least there can be in amateur boxing as there is in, in professional boxing does that does that harden you to it to the business to any extent when you do go to turn professional because it is it is, it is very different. I mean, some some fighters I see who turn over, I do look at them and I wonder whether they're quite cut out for it. But it must be a sport that makes you grow up quickly because, well, for all the reasons we've just been talking about, you have to you have to take responsibility, you have to harden yourself to pain, you have to kind of reconcile yourself with injustice at times, and you have to do it quickly. Yeah, I mean. I went to the World Junior Championships in 2000 in Budapest and I really thought I'm going to go and win the gold medal here because I'd been performing, winning gold medals in multi-nations and I'd actually got, gotten down from 71 kilos to 67 welterweight for it. So I thought that'd give me, uh, you know, the edge to go into it, uh, that I'd, I'd go all the way and, and get the gold medal. And um, I got to I boxed really well first fight, uh, being an Italian guy, Andre Di Lucia, who had beaten actually in an England against Italy match. Um, but, you know, boxed him down at welterweight, beat him. And then in the next round, I think it, was, it might have been the quarterfinals or the last 16, I boxed the Hungarian. I think I've told you this one before. And if yeah, you spoke to me and John Dillon I mean, about it. But you're, you're boxing in Hungary against the Hungarian, who's also good. And that means that basically you're going to have to shoot him to win that I mean, fight, this is really. when they brought out the outclassed rule for this. I think it was this tournament or this, the other tournament before, you know, 50, it was 15 points at that time. And I came back after the first round, thought, good, good round, you know what I mean? And uh, sit down and it was Nigel Travis's dad, Calvin Travis yeah. in my corner. And he says to me, you're two down. And I was like, what? Do you know, two down. So anyway, I was like, oh, okay. So we stick on these rounds. So I went out the next round. And, you know, I had an even better round. And I came back to the corner. And I was 10 down. Calvin's head was gone. He was shouting out at someone in the ring. He wasn't even giving, taking my gum shield out or giving me a drink. Because, you know, he's a passionate guy. And Carl knows, knows him. He was going mental. You know, third round. Halfway through the round. Bing, bing. Bell goes. Outclassed. 17-2. I don't think he threw 17 punches. Do you know what I mean? And I basically punched him pillar to post. I couldn't believe it. it was, I was absolutely disgusted. I had a professional style at the time. I was hanging around uh, a lot with Robert McCracken and Spencer McCracken. You know, I was kind of very much 
with uh, thought I was going to turn pro with them at that point. And I, I thought, you know what, fuck this. I'm turning pro after this. You, you've talked as well um, before. Uh, it's always entertaining about just what goes through your head when you turn pro. So I just wonder what it was like for you because you have you have all these decisions you've got to make, uh, particularly if you've been a high-profile amateur and, and your your training regime and all the rest of it may, may be determined for you, which would be the case if you're on GB or on the Irish Elite Performance Squad now. You've got a lot of things you've got to decide on, yeah. and and most people, their head just ends up spinning. I mean, how did you manage to navigate it all? Well, I think the big issue for me turning professional was the biggest concern for me was the difference in the gloves. So going from soft amateur gloves to and, and head guards, I never, I don't even think when I when I fought as a pro I'd ever had my as a, my pro debut I'd never had my hand in a professional glove before I think in the changing room I remember putting the gloves on and kind of touching myself around the head and going fucking hell <laughs> what is this if I get hit with this yeah. and I was fighting a clown like you yeah. do in your debut in your first few fights but I remember being really nervous about how hard it was going to be and the difference of, of the gloves and I, I remember I get hit like just with a nothing shot really and I remember just thinking, holy shit, this, this is, is different. This is way this is different. different. This is way different. And the guy was crap. I stopped him in the second round. But the big concern with me from going from amateur boxing to professional was the gloves. Um, I was boxing at like I was boxing on a matchroom show in my debut in the Liverpool Olympia in front of maybe 20 people at like 5.30. Um, but I remember being genuine. I was, I was frightened. I was frightened and, and worried about... about Conscious about, oh, if I get knocked out here, like, holy shit, this is terrible. I was just going to ask you exactly that, just to see whether you would admit to, to, to that kind of just just physical fear, basically, because plenty of people won't. Um, it's unusual, even though this is a long time ago, it's unusual for an active fighter to be happy to to, to admit to something like that. But it's it's... I mean, it's just a big part of the sport, isn't it? I mean, it's hard, it hurts, it's painful, bad things yeah. can happen. And if you're not afraid, there's got to be something wrong with you, probably. Oh, yeah. I mean, but but ner nerves are a good thing. They make yeah. you sharp. I mean, fear is a good thing, yeah. you know, as long as you don't let it overwhelm you. And I remember listening to Carl talk there. It took me back. I remember some of my pro debut, I remember it wasn't so much. I boxed a guy called Ram Singh, who I knew was terrible. And I knew, even though I had the nerves, no head guard, no what vest. Ram Singh. Oh, I've always said Rob C. Rob no. C. Nez. <laughs> I was in Glasgow, though. <laughs> but, but, you know, got him out of there first round. Anyway, the second fight I had, I was the swing bout, and it was Ricky Hatton against Justin Roussel was the main event. It was at Wembley Conference Centre. I went to that. I went to that. Yeah, yeah Enzo was on that card as well, wasn't he? He, he may well have been. Like a, yeah, he, he probably was, he was. But I remember... I remember, you know, thinking, who am I boxing? You know, trying to get a look at him and he had a foreign name and that. Anyway, there was a guy there warming up he was popping his head out of the opponent's changing room let's say and he had these shorts and he had a sponsor he had proper boxing boots he wasn't one of these blue shorts adidas you know yeah. the journeyman that i'm thinking of so anyway um and i'm boxing in the rayers gloves i was eight times because of welterweight at the time so was these eight times rayers and they were like i'm on they were tiny i could barely get my hands into them and uh i remember walking up the stairs i remember it worked out that i was a swing bat and i was on before the main event so i'm walking up the stairs and the bout before was Steve Murray against, I think it was Jason Hall, one of them. And I think it was Jason Hall coming down the stairs as I was coming up. And his face was absolutely smashed to pieces. <laughs> both his eyes were re absolutely written off. He had blood coming everywhere. He was gashes over both. A big, massive swelling. His nose was swollen to bits. <laughs> you know, when you just think, this is the reality. You know, I've stepped over the line now. This is it. You know, I'm walking in. I'm boxing this opponent who I know nothing about because, you know, he's a, a foreigner. But I, could, but I can tell he's up for it. He's not like a, a journeyman journeyman. He's like got a sponsor and a gown and everything. And, uh, yeah, I remember he, 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 we come out and we're kind of fainting each other, trying to weigh each other up, get that distance. And I remember he fainting the jab at me and he just clipped me with the left hook then. And that, it was a clip, it was like a fast left hook. It didn't, like, hurt us and shape me or anything like that. But I remember thinking, ooh, that feels a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyway, I knocked him out in that round, but I just I remember thinking, fucking hell, it's bit, this is different. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. It's, it's those gloves uh, just seem impossibly small when you see them in real life, particularly the ones which 
have got the padding evenly spread or maybe more towards the back of the glove because that, that's another thing that people don't understand it there was a good article in boxing news about this recently actually and um elliot Wurzel wrote it and it seems people from other sports would find it absolutely incredible that you don't all have to use the same gloves as, you, as in the same yeah. design do you know what it is as well and then carl will, 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 will confirm this it's like it's not just the gloves in amateur boxing you've got three rounds it's, it's over so quick and you know guys are sharp and you, you, you're almost you're almost pulling out before you've landed because you don't yeah. want to get counted to get outscored in pro boxing people are coming forward and they're sitting down on their shots and they're not trying to hit you and get a point and get away they're trying to punch through you so you know it's not only the gloves tiny but there's there's a difference with the intent. You're not. People aren't trying to score points. People are trying to do damage. People are trying to knock you out, and that's you know. It, it, it's I agree different. completely. Yeah. I had a, and I had a, my style, like you were saying earlier on. I had a, I had a style suited to the pro game, um, so it wasn't a, a really hard transition. But yeah, I, I used to get frustrated with guys who out, out pointed me and big, tall, like I said, John Joe Nevin type fighters would have boxed my head in, but. I had this style where I, I felt like I was suited to the pros, but my first few fights, like, you know, you're knocking these guys over, but my debut, I remember getting hit by the guy going, oh, wow, I've never felt anything like this before, because it's just a it's just different feeling. Um, but that's that's one of the main differences. The gloves are... are the, people don't understand but like what gloves are like until you've actually put your hand in a pro professional boxing glove. Like, you can feel your knuckles through them and stuff, you know, there's not a lot in them. No, there really isn't. And when you see big bag gloves and a lot of people who, who will just do a bit of boxing circuit training or hit bags or hit pads, they're tell you wearing thing. these big bag gloves. And 10 ounces on, you know, 10 ounces on heavyweight. You know, Anthony yeah. Joshua wears 10 ounce gloves. And when, I mean, it's, when you've done 10, 12 rounds and the, the sweat and the wet and the, you know, the, um, the bandage and that, you know what I mean? That, that, that yeah. glove, that's 8 ounce, 10 ounce, all of a sudden it becomes hard and heavy, yeah. doesn't it? yeah. And there's, there's obviously different gloves and stuff. People talk about puncher's gloves and res and stuff. I've never used res. I, know, I went from Grants to Everlast. Um, and both are probably seen as puncher's gloves as well. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference in, in different... I remember fighting Josh Warrington, and he had... who's not a noted puncher, and he had winning gloves on, which are seen to be a safe glove. And I was thinking... You know, he's not really a puncher. Why, why is he wearing winnings? They're not really a puncher's gloves. I got hit in the first round and I felt like my whole world was coming down. So all, all like pro gloves can, you can do a lot of damage in them. I mean, the wear and tear on your hands too. I mean, I'm just looking at your right hand there and there's, there's some scarring on that hand. You broke both your hands in, in your last fight. So, I mean, will that make a difference to you now going forward? Well, I, I saw this left hand here. There's a big scar. There's seven screws and a plate in it. And my right hand... Um, there was a tendon ripped and there was a screw, I think, one screw put in that. Um, but I don't think it's going to make a difference. If, if I had had this happen at the start of my career, it may have been more problematic. But I'm at the stage of my career now where I've only got a few more fights. I don't want to be hanging around for, for too many more years. So um, the way the specialist says this left, left hand in particular, he's like, you need to smash it with a sledgehammer for it to break you're not going to break it by punching because of the screws or a pillar falling on it again something like that um, but that was just mental that was man. oh surreal I remember texting Jamie I was, and I was like I, thought, I knew he wasn't joking but yeah. was, people I, didn't believe yeah, it but I was thinking this you got to be joking I know you're not joking but yeah. you got to be joking mate. he was like how unlucky can you possibly be talk about a freak incident yeah. people still don't believe it and uh, I, to be honest I would probably be one of them if it happened to someone else. Like, ah, oh, bullshit, that's a made-up story. But our Mark Kriegel from ESPN kind of grilling me after the fight. Like, so you weren't drunk, you didn't fight someone in a bar. And I was like, what, that's five days after my fight? You know, I'm, I feel like I'm a fucking consummate professional. I'm not, no, yeah, not give me drunk. Some credit. Not, you're not going to yeah. go around doing that, are you? Um, but he was, he was digging and trying to... He, he didn't believe me, but... I don't know if he still does, but if I was in that position, I probably wouldn't have believed that it was uh, it was it was mental. It was, and it's it's an example of some of the things that can. It doesn't come as any great surprise that that kind of thing happens in boxing. I don't know whether things like that happen in other sports. It just it it, it attracts the chaos and it, it it attracts the the madness. I mean, when you when you turn professional, what were your 
I think it's quite a good question for you, actually. When you, when you started, what were your, your goals? It, the Cole Frampton on day one as a pro, I'd imagine we'd look at Cole Frampton now and think, wow. Oh, absolutely. Didn't you do well? Absolutely. I've, I feel like I've, I've overachieved, and I think that a couple of things I wanted to do as a professional. One was win a British title, which i never done. Um, the other was to win a world title. And if at the start of my career you had to give me the option of winning a world title and losing it in my first defence, I think I'd have taken that. So to go on and become a two-way champion in unified division and and everything else I've done, I think that's uh, I'm I'm delighted with with how my career's turned out. But in saying that, I have an option. Well, hopefully to become Ireland's first ever three-way world champion. We have fight with Jamel Herring. Um, extremely difficult fight, but me as a pro, I'd have taken uh, a world title and and losing it in my first defence just starting out. I'd have taken that. Yes, that line falls on the right, babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network.